So, uh, first Sunday, pseudo first Sunday, we are in Ecclesiastes, uh, which is a book that was written a long time ago, and uh, as we've been finding out over and over and over again, it has a lot to say about our current situation. So we are going to now hear yet another timely message uh, from 3,000 years ago <laughs> from the book of Ecclesiastes. Could I ask you if you're able to please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is a bit of a long, longer reading than we usually do, uh, so if you need to sit down, please feel free to sit. Uh, but if you're able, would you stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word? The Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of Christ, so let's listen intently together to the reading of God's inerrant Word. <clears throat> this is Ecclesiastes, starting at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 13, going through 10, 20. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. It was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt the one who does, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed." If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city." Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. But even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please uh, be seated. 
Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to this text. Uh, Lord, about what it says about who we are, the things we choose willingly, the kind of leaders uh, that we willingly put over us, what that says about us, what it says about the world in general, Lord, and what you say to that, how you answer that huge problem that we have, which is our own hearts. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your wisdom clearly through this text, this wisdom literature, but even more so, we pray that you would help us to see the wisdom and the beauty of Christ in through it. And so, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So maybe as I just read through that, that fairly lengthy passage, you maybe might have been thinking to yourself, how does, what, how does any of this fit together? If you read through it, the first time I read through it, earlier, in the, you know, I was like, oh man, this is going to be rough. It doesn't seem at first to be any clear uh, theme in it. It seems almost to be like a random collection of wisdom sayings. And in fact, some of the commentaries, even some of the better commentaries, call this section various wisdom sayings. And that's like they throw up their hands. That's the best we can do. Um, but I think, uh, you know, without doubt, this is one of the hardest passages to understand in Ecclesiastes. It's pro- it is the hardest passage we've come up, up across yet. And it, uh, I think a big part of that, though, is just because of the style that it's in and the language that it uses, which um, is a style of, of poetic wisdom literature, which was probably perfectly understandable to the people in the ancient Near East when they would read this. They'd be like, oh yeah, I totally get it. Think about, think about like a rap song that uses like street imagery and, and different lyrical methods to get across profound political or uh, political ideas or ideas about life, and yet, if you were to play it for your grandparents, they'd be like, I have no idea what that just said, even though it was rich in meaning. So the biggest part of our problem, really getting this passage, is the fact that it's just in a style that we're very unaccustomed to. It's super hard to understand, even though it is very much rich in meaning. And so, this is, a, this is more of a meditation on us. We're a shorter meditation on our first Sundays. So we can't hit everything in this passage, but we can hit the highlights. We can hit the peaks. And what we're talking about here, the basic theme in this passage is how foolishness just runs through everything in life, even to the highest levels of human institutions and government. It's not... It's not just that there is this group of foolish people out there that we all have to put up with. That's, that's the default position. It's not us. It's those foolish people. Uh, but what this is saying is that when we get down to brass tacks, is that it's uh, not just that there are foolish people out there that we all have to deal with, but that we ourselves often prefer foolishness. And worse, uh, we will often get behind foolishness and prop it up into lofty places in hopes of reaping some of the benefits of foolish power to come with us. And nobody is immune from that. This is one of the clear places in Ecclesiastes, ironically, in all of its obscurity of, of, of language. It is one of the clearest sections where the preacher champions his main theme of anti-wisdom. In other words, we all know what ought to be. 
We all know what the Proverbs say. We all know that if you're good, if you work hard, if you seek righteousness, that you should be promoted, that you should be rewarded. And we know that if you're bad, that if you're lazy, that if you seek evil, if you seek the shortcut and everything, if you're always after the get-rich-quick scheme, that you ultimately will be uh, in despair. We know what wisdom says, and yet what the preacher says is, if that's true, if that's true, why is it, especially in the realm of politics, which is the main theme here, why is it that the history of American and and worldwide political tradition has pretty much been the story of the choice between two evils? The choice between the lesser of two evils. Every election cycle we say the same thing. And you look at history, forever, same thing. If that's true, why? If the righteous are rewarded, if the righteous are supposed to be lifted up, why do we find ourselves constantly over and over again in this position of lamenting the leadership that we have? And at the end of the day, the preacher gives us two disturbing realities. Number one, that wisdom and wise people are vulnerable to being overtaken by foolishness. And two, that the world is basically shaped by self-serving motives and no one, not even the church, is immune from it. But the preacher doesn't tell us this to drive us to despair. He teaches us this to drive us to something else. There is, there is a, 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 you know, one of the worn out, C.S. Lewis quotes, it says something to the effect of, that if I find in myself a desire for something that nothing in the world can satisfy, it must mean that I was made to be part of another world. And that principle really uh, extends throughout all of life and all areas of life, so that if we find uh, in our experience that we have tried everything and nothing works, then it's good evidence to believe that there must be something better, there must be a different world, there must be a better ruler and so ultimately, the preacher is driving us in contrast to see the beauty of Jesus. That's the big point. So big idea, the thesis. The one thing the preacher, the Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything in this passage is this. That in a world where wisdom is vulnerable and foolishness rules, we can always count on Christ. Amen? In a world where wisdom is vulnerable and foolishness rules, we can always count on Christ. Let's break that down one piece at a time. First, in a world where wisdom is vulnerable. Look at verse uh, 17 through 10.1. The words... The words of the wise are heard in quiet. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It's a graphic picture of how just a little bit of foolishness A little bit of sin, a little bit of evil can wreck a whole bunch of things. And he starts, he gives us this story of a poor but wise man 
who is part of this small city, a powerful ruler comes and builds siege works all around this little city. If you know anything about middle, ancient Near Eastern warfare, it was awful what they did to each other. And so somehow this poor wise man who was a man of no account in the city managed through his wisdom to save the city from this mighty power. And then the, the moral of the story that the preacher wants to bring out is that at the end of it, everybody forgot about him. What did they do with this guy? Did they make him king? Did they say, oh my God, your wisdom is surpassing all things. We need you to help us. We are going to make you king. Nope. Did they put a statue of him in this town square? Nope. It says, as soon as the danger passed, they forgot all about the poor guy and went right back to the party. That's the basic idea. There's two things in there. The one is that this guy, because he was a poor man of no account, he wasn't part of the in crowd, he wasn't part of the rich and famous crew, and so because of who he was as a poor man, the text really brings that out. It says he's poor twice, that he was overlooked. And we have a hist- that's a hist- historical, it's almost a proverb, that people who are of the wrong economic class, people who are of the wrong race, uh, their wisdom is not taken. Their wisdom is not remembered. Their contributions are not honored in the way that they should be, as this poor man was forgotten. But it also says something about us, that even, even when we are in the midst of getting something right, we so quickly forget the wisdom and move right back into the foolishness. Even, even when we get it right, we forget, and the lessons that we should be learning from wisdom, we have to learn over and over and over and over again. That's just the reality. That's just the reality of the history of the world. Uh, a harder reality, the second thing about, second part about why wisdom is so vulnerable is that because a little bit of the second part is a little bit of foolishness can wreck the whole thing. When I was trying to think about uh, a, a poor wise man who saved the city, I was trying to think of somebody by name. I couldn't think of anybody. I kept thinking about Winston Churchill. Really, I'm reading right now uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, this, this massive book. I'm reading through it, and it was ta- I'm writing the part where it's talking about how the, the former prime minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, uh, just foolishly just capitulated and appeased Hitler over and over again until all the defendable territory of Europe was gone, and Hitler was just able to move in to Czechoslovakia, move into Poland, uh, and then it's contrasted with Winston Churchill, who literally saved the city. In his wisdom, he came and saved the city from not, uh, England, London, from the tyranny of Nazi power. And so we're in the West. We see Winston Churchill. We, you know, we love, the, you know, the, we love as Americans the rags to riches story. We love, uh, the, you know, the outcast. Churchill was outcast, and then he was brought into government because he was the only guy saying, don't trust Hitler, don't trust Hitler. And eventually his wisdom won the day and saved the city. And so as Americans, as Britons, I think Winston Churchill just won some, uh, in some survey, the greatest Briton of all time. Because we love heroes. But if you were Australian, you don't have quite the same understanding of Winston Churchill that we do in the West, because the reason Winston Churchill was ousted from power 
was because in the World War II, he made an incredibly pompous, uh, bad decision to attack Turkey. It ended up costing, uh, it ended up a million men were in the battle, half of them died. Much of Australia's male population was killed off. And so in, every year they celebrate this in Australia, and Winston Churchill is seen as this man who was foolish. And so even in the most perfect political careers, even the, the, our heroes that we vaunt as like these, these almost godlike deliverers, if we really look at it, we look at the history, we see that in the midst of all that, there are some flies that are making the ointment stench. There's more about Winston Churchill, but we'll leave it at that. And, and, uh, you know, so the disturbing reality, number one, first disturbing reality the preacher wants to put before our eyes as life under the sun is that foolishness and evil run through even our very best intentions and that the world is run by deeply flawed men who seek to do good but are still deeply flawed. This is what Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, part of what Paul calls the the world is suffering underneath the bondage to corruption. Now, Christian apologists love to to wheel that out as as a battle or a defense against the idea of evolution, that that all things tend to decay. And they say things like, well, you you can prove this to yourself, take a banana, put it on your kitchen counter and leave it there for two weeks and see what happens. Does it become fresher or does it decay and disintegrate? And so the, the argument goes, the argument goes because we see all things tend towards disintegration. There's no way that things could order themselves without an outside divine intellect, right? That's the apologetic order. But the principle goes far beyond just matter decaying. It also talks about our ability to think, our reason, our, our minds uh, are all equally tend towards decay and towards corruption. And so the preacher is bringing out that awful reality that even in the best of us, there is foolishness and just a little bit of that foolishness can thwart or take over or ruin even the very best attempts that we have towards the good. Bad news number one. The world, in, the world is, and wisdom is vulnerable to foolishness. And point two, point two is, is that foolishness reigns. Point one, in a world where wisdom is vulnerable, point two, foolishness reigns. I'm going to read from 16 through uh, from 10, chapter 10, 16 through verse 19. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, when your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. And money is the answer to everything. Now that sounds like a business book that just came out last week almost, doesn't it? That last, that last line, as most commentators think, and I agree that that is almost that's a, a song that the evil princers, that the foolish rulers would sing to themselves. They would say, hey, bread is for, bread is for 
Bread is made for laughter, so let's we laugh. We have plenty of bread. Wine gladdens the heart. And we have tons of money. It's going to answer everything. We've got nothing to worry about. And in that attitude of neglect, the roof caves in of the state, the roof caves in of the nation. Uh, and through indolence, it says, uh, indolence, everything falls apart. And what this is saying is that, is that sometimes the world is not run by deeply flawed men who seek the good. Sometimes the world is run by deeply flawed men who seek their own good at the expense of everyone else. And that's a reality. There's this professor at Dallas Seminary, John Hanna, and he says, he says uh, I heard his quote from him where he said, I used to believe... I used to believe that evil men did evil things for evil reasons. And the more I study history, the more I've come to the conclusion that evil men do evil things for what they think are very good reasons. In other words, the corruption has so overtaken men in their quest for power that what they believe they are do they truly believe that what they are doing is good, but in reality, it is self-serving, it is evil, it is wicked. The power of sin and foolishness to overtake us completely is so great that it deceives, it can deceive and all the way to the very, very, very top levels. And so Solomon in, uh, in the, a lot of the hard understand section is Solomon giving these examples, these metaphorical examples of what a foolish king looks like. He says in verse 8 that they lay traps for themselves or they lay traps for others, and then they fall into that themselves. They're so foolish that they, in their, in their dealings, they try to set people up, and it ends up catching them off guard, and they fall into it themselves. They tear down established order without thinking it through. In other words, they break down walls, and this snake bites them. They don't do the necessary work of preparation uh, and end up making things harder for everyone. They, instead of sharpening the axe first before they do the work, they just grab the axe and start whacking away at the wood and it ends up being way harder and taking way more energy. Uh, and then they talk forever and ever and ever about themselves and how great they are and they boast about themselves and tell everyone how they know everything, uh, hoping that by just a bluster and flurry of words, that they will be able to fool people into thinking that they're the experts. But at the end of the day, they don't even know how to get to the city. And we would say they don't even have enough sense to come in out of the rain. In other words, they have no idea what they're doing. And what's the consequence of this? It's another section he lays out when, when, people, when, when, when people like this come into power, into positions of power, uh, they begin setting the stage and they begin putting other people in positions of power that are like themselves, other people that are going to blow them up, other people that are going to further their own self-serving agendas until you get entire governments that are full of the same type of low-character person and it gets to the point where honorable people are either blocked because of their character or they get to the, it gets to the point where uh, the culture of politics is so toxic that no decent person would ever want to even think about it. <laughs> Sound familiar? Uh, 
Well, you know, here's the thing. I could have, I could have read this. I could have read that in just about any century, and I said, and then said, "Sounds familiar," and everybody would have been, "Yeah," because it is perennial. It is perennial that self-serving rulers can rise in to power, and it happens over and over again. But the, thing, the question I was asking myself, I was asking myself, what, as I'm reading through this and meditating on this, what, what does this say to us? How, what, is, what is our complicity in it? It's not, we can't just say, yeah, those bad rulers. They suck. I can't wait till they're gone. And the next bad ruler that I hate is in office. How do they keep, how do, why is it that every century I could say this, everyone would nod their heads. Why is it that it keeps happening over and over and over again? And the reality is, I think, the reality is what the text says implicitly is that the reason why we continue to fall for self-serving rulers is because self-serving rulers offer us self-serving promises and the foolishness of our own heart takes the bait. And we run with it. We hope that we will benefit somehow in in the power of the foolish king. And uh, everybody's guilty of this. Don't be pointing fingers at each other. Maybe the king is promising more sex at the expense of children, at the expense of families, ultimately at the expense of of uh, stability drawing us into poverty at the expense of economic collapse. Maybe, on the other side, the ruler is promising more money at, on one hand, maybe the expense of human dignity, on the other hand, at the expense of necessary protections for people that don't have economic and social power. Maybe one side says, more freedom and huge chunks of the population become willing to sell out all virtue and authenticity in the hopes of a few years of protection and power grabbing and misery ensues. There's this novel by Wendell Berry called Jabber Crow. It's a story of two farmers on one plot of land, it's the father-in-law and the son-in-law. The father-in-law looks at the land as, uh, as a blessing, as, a, as something that produces, as, as a way of blessing all the people that are attached to it. And so he's constantly seeking to use less of the resources, just what he needs, and always constantly seeking to use the land to be a blessing for all those who depend upon it. And his son-in-law is totally opposite. His son-in-law sees the land as a way to gain personal wealth and status and so he plows the entire land he uses every inch of it towards that end he starts using the tools and the implements of the farm and he begins using the people in the farm all towards producing maximum results so that he can get rich as fast as he possibly can and the story is as the father-in-law gets older and the son becomes more powerful and the son is slandering the father throughout town eventually the tables turn and the blessing of the land becomes a curse. 
because this man has sucked it dry for everything he can for personal gain. It's an awful and sad story, but it's a disturbing uh, a reminder and, and it's, it's, it's parallel to the second disturbing reality the Kohelet that the preacher presents to us. And that is that ultimately the world is run by self-serving motives and no one, not even the church, is immune. So, now what? Should we just sink into despair? He's presented these disturbing realities about the world we live in that He's presented his view, this, this anti-wisdom. The righteous are supposed to win. The good are supposed to prosper. But that doesn't happen. We see evil rulers constantly coming into place. We see evil and foolishness running through our own hearts to the degree when we prop them up for our own benefit. And, and the world, the land, suffers. It's despairing. Uh, But he doesn't give it to us for us to sink into despair. He gives it to us by way of contrast. There's a contrast that he is setting up for us. If we look at every political system, we look at all the leaders, we, always, we see that over and over again, we have failed to bring in the utopia that we hope to bring. Maybe there's a better solution. Maybe there's something outside of this world that we need to look to. And so point three is that we can always count on Christ. We can always count on Christ. He, the preacher, before he gives us the ultimate solution, he does give two quick offerings about what do we do in the midst of this awful world. The first is at 10.4, where he says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. In other words, in through it, We need to be calm. We need to not overreact. We need to not uh, begin thinking that the world, that that, the, the caving in of the world is the ultimate disaster for us because as children of God, as heirs to the new world, it is not. And in uh, verse 10, 20, he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. In the the context, what he's saying is, be real careful what you say because spies are everywhere and might get back to the king and he might kill you. Uh, But in our context, we could also say that don't strike out in angry words against the evil kings that are paraded before us. Why? Because if we do that, if we do that, if we lose our calm, uh, and if we strike back in angry words towards the evil rulers of this age, what we're doing is really just becoming one more self-serving kingdom fighting for dominance in this world. And that is not the message that we're trying to put to the world. If we do that, people will say, they don't really believe in the new kingdom. They don't really believe in the kingdom of God. They don't really believe in the new heavens and the new earth. They're fighting for dominance of this, of, of right here and now, just as hard as we are. And so it behooves us as people of God to be calm, 
to sit through as best we can, to not to just give in. We should be seeking to improve and to redeem, uh, you know, to, to bring the message of redemption to people, to improve the culture as best we can. But ultimately, that's not going to solve the problem, right? Ultimately, filling sandbags and propping up girders and, and doing what we can in this world is not the ultimate answer. And so Kohelet, so the preacher, ultimately brings us to the contrast of seeing Jesus against the backdrop of all the bad rulers that are in this age. You know, every time we see a ruler fail us, every time we see a ruler sell out to self-serving interests, every time we, we just, it just hits us how self-serving the whole thing is and how people and the poor are used as tools for the benefit of those of, of people in power, how we see the, when we see the corruption of all of it, it forces us or it gives us an opportunity to look at Jesus as the beautiful king over all. You know, every foolish leader we've ever endured, every foolish leader that we have sinfully propped up and perpetrated on others, every time we've been complicit in our own foolishness, all of that, all of that sin is covered in the righteousness of Jesus. In his, what we call, act of obedience, Jesus has covered all of our sin and has made us righteous before the Father through his perfection. And we can rejoice in that. And that is what gives us the strength to be calm and to, and to be reasonable in the midst of the chaos of the world. Uh, but even more than that, we see how Jesus is truly the beautiful king against the backdrop of the rulers of the earth. He has sacrificed himself for us versus the other way around. And through his righteousness and through his death, we are healed and we have been given passage to the new kingdom. And so we are able to sit tight and be a blessing to those around us as we await for the good king to come and take us home. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, what it says about us. We thank you, Lord, for uncovering the sinful nature of our hearts so that we... Lord, might fully be able to worship you. Lord, we so desperately wish to be freed from the corruption of this world and, and, and how we see it grasping our own hearts, how we see even on the inside, Lord. Sin isn't something outside of us. It's something inside. And we are so desperate for you to heal us, Lord. Father, we thank you for the sanctification that you're working in our lives now. We pray that you would help us to grow, Lord, but ultimately, Lord, we thank you that we do not have to put all of our hope in the, in the rulers of this world and the things of this world, that we can know that this is temporary and that soon will come a day when we will be with you in paradise and in perfection forever. And we thank you for that beautiful hope that was purchased through your blood. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.